let me let me pray uh, as we uh, come to God's word together. And then I will ask you to stand as we read uh, the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Use this, your word, uh, to draw us to Christ, to save sinners, and to equip the saved. Uh, we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, would you uh, please stand if you're able as we give our attention to the reading of God's word. And let me also call attention to your response uh, after uh, we read God's word together. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and we'll read all the way through verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. When I was a kid, we had this. Um, I, I guess technically I have to call it artwork. It was framed and hanging on a wall. Does that does that make it art? I probably just offended some people. Um, but it was a it was a. I don't know. It was about that. It was just a collection of sayings it was just, it was just phrases it wasn't like a painting it wasn't like a picture it was just words and and each sentence each phrase each sort of pithy thing whatever was a, a different color to kind of call your attention to it and i would i would sit there and try to memorize i tried to learn all of them my goal was i wonder how many of these i can remember when i'm old i can remember three that's not a good percentage by the way the first one was today is the first day of the rest of your life Fair enough. The last one was, call your mother. Just saying. Um, but there was one in the middle that said, you never know how many friends you have until you rent a cottage at the beach. Which makes sense, right? You rent a cottage, you rent a beach house, and suddenly you've got people putting their, hey, buddy, pal, remember how we used to... Man, we've been friends for so long, right? I mean, as soon as you have something that somebody else wants or thinks they could benefit from or could use or could capitalize on this great friendship you've had for ages. As soon as you've got something that draws them like that, they suddenly become your best friend. 
Our passage this morning describes the opposite relationship. A relationship with someone who set their love and affections on you when you had no beach house. In fact, you had nothing whatsoever to offer. You had nothing that would endear him, God, to you. There was nothing in your possession. There was nothing about you that would say, you know, God really should come put my arm around me and go, hey, buddy, remember when we used to, because you've got this cottage at the beach. And it's a picture of the work that God has done for us, despite the fact that we have no beach house. We have nothing whatsoever that we can offer in return. First, I want you to see, and we're going to focus on verses 4 through 9. Last week, verses 1 through 3. Uh, in two weeks, verse 10. Uh, this morning, we're focusing on verses 4 through 9. First, I want you to see what God has done for us. Did you notice verses 5 and 6? Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, writes that God made us alive. Now, we started in verse 1, right? We, we read from the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. You have to sort of take the running leap. You have to sort of you know, catch the, the, the whole of the context. But if you picked up in verse 5 out of nowhere, if you just flopped your Bible open and stuck your finger down and started reading at verse 5, you would have to already ask yourself, made us alive. I mean, like I'm already alive. Otherwise, I couldn't read verse 5. Like, isn't that sort of inherent in living that I, that I can see this? And so since I can see this and I must be alive, but remember how you were described in verse 1. The, the language in verse 1 was dead in your trespasses and sins. And the reality is, Paul... Um, reminds us of that in verse five. Now I'm 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 old enough to do this, but the reality is I've been doing this entirely too many years of my life. Um, but we all can can get up out of the chair and walk into a room and then wonder why we walked into that room. Remind me again. I literally twice yesterday went to my bathroom to get something. And never came out with it. Um, it took the third trip uh, to figure. But even I am not going to forget dead in sins from verse 1 to verse 5. Like, you can have the shortest of short-term memories. And you're not going to miss. You're not going to forget. But Paul still repeats it, right? Um, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So Paul reminds us of our previous condition that we were dead in sin. But this new condition, we suddenly find ourselves made alive. By the way, because grammar matters, that's passive. Right? God made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. But we get that, right? Dead people don't make themselves come alive. That's consistent. We kind of go, well, duh. And that's part of Paul's point. I almost, 
almost read Ezekiel 37 for our Old Testament reading. The passage about the valley of dry bones. Uh, We could give our attention to John 11 and uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Both pictures of our complete and total dependence on someone else to come in their grace and in their power to give life to those who can't do it for themselves. And John 11, Lazarus is in the grave and we'll get there eventually, Lord willing, in our series in John. We're still doing John as much as you might have forgotten that. We are still in John and we'll get to chapter 11 eventually But four days he's in the tomb. In fact, uh, one of the sisters actually says to Jesus, you know, he says, hey, roll away the tomb. And everybody goes, hold on a second, King James. But he stinketh. That's his condition. That's a a physical um, resurrection, of course, but it's a picture of. Of our spiritual resurrection, our spiritual life, of the work that God has done for us in our place. But I wonder sometimes if when someone asks you, um, what has Jesus done for you? My guess is our default response, our default answer is forgiven me. For my sins. He's forgiven my sins. But if you think about it, all that really does is kind of get you back up to zero. Right? I mean, if you owe a debt, if you if you go down to the bank and go, whoops, I've got negative hundred dollars in my bank account. And somebody says, well, here, here's a hundred bucks. You can pay the debt, but you're just back up to zero. You still can't do anything. You still can't eat. We think far too often, of that the work of Christ is basically to get me back up to zero. And then I've got, okay, now I'm going to start. Okay, Jesus got me back to zero, and now it's up to me to make sure I don't go in debt again. I don't go back down below zero. He's paid for our sins, and that's true. But pay attention to verse 6. Because that's not the only thing that He's done. Did you notice He's made us alive. He's also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God made us alive, but he's also raised us up with Christ. He seats us in the heavenly places. In other words, the death of Christ that pays for our sin can't be separated from his resurrection his ascension, his rule and reign now. Our pardon for sin can't be separated from the fact that we're freed from the bonds of sin itself. The reality is we're, we're freed from sin's penalty and we are being freed from sin's power and we long for the day when we're freed from sin's presence for good. So there's this picture then in verses 5 and 6 of the fact that the the work that God does for us is not just make us alive, not just bring us back from the dead and make us alive, but then He raises us with Christ and actually seats us in. It's it's a picture of 
spiritual wealth. It's a a picture of spiritual health and wealth. We're united to Christ who has conquered sin and death and who, as we confess in our creeds, is seated at the right hand of the Father. When exactly does a warrior king sit down? You ever thought about that? When does a warrior, when does a a, a king warrior person actually decide, I can sit down now? Well, it's, it's when their work is done. It's when the war is over. It's when they've accomplished their purpose. Right? The, the king goes out to battle and he defeats an enemy and he doesn't celebrate a feast until the enemy is actually vanquished. The enemy is actually gone. He doesn't just kill one or two and go, okay, I'm going to sit down and take a break for a second while all this chaos is going on around me. There's this picture that Jesus has, is seated at the right hand because his work for us is accomplished and we are living out of all of that work for us. For that matter, you you remember the description of the dead in sin back in verses 2 and 3. Following the world, the flesh, and the devil. We unpacked that last week to kind of our, our three enemies as uh, God's people. Those who are dead set, those three enemies dead set on, on, well, crushing our faith and crushing Christ, if at all possible, which we know is not possible. But there's this picture then that because we're united to Christ, not just in his death, but in his resurrection, that we're living, following not the world, the flesh and the devil, but we're following Christ. He's delivered us from those powers that once ruled over us. We we still sin. there's There's not a promise of sinlessness yet, right? We're... We're still waiting to be freed from the presence of sin. That happens in the life to come, in the world that is to come. But we're no longer bound to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're no longer bound to those spiritual enemies that we once were when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. Once we stinketh, right? Once we too stinketh. But just as Lazarus came out of that tomb and was given new clothes and actually sat down to feast together, that describes us as well. We are now, according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the aroma of Christ. It's really a picture, and and I always have these realizations way too late. You know, those... It's always in those shows or in kind of in your life. You're like, oh, I had this great comeback, except I needed it yesterday. Or I need, you know, oh, I wish I thought of this yesterday. This would have been so smart. Or I wish I thought of this two weeks ago. We could have sung Rock of Ages. We're not ending with Rock of Ages. We could have, but we just sang it two weeks ago. And by the time I realized it, I couldn't spring it on Dixie. It was just too late. And we just sang it, so it didn't make sense. But have you ever paid attention to um, be of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. 
you ever wondered what on earth that meant? Well, it means this right here. That that's this passage, right? That the blood of Christ cleanses us. It's a double cure. It cleanses me from its guilt, the shame, the the debt that I owe, but it also frees me from its power in this life. We see the work that God is what what God has done for us. Second, I want you to see why God has done this work for us. And there's actually Two reasons given in this passage. The first looks back in time and the second looks um, a different direction. Uh, But look back at verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It would be wrong of you to think that the son's work forces the father to love you. That's not what John 3.16 says. It would also be wrong of you to think that the Father forced the Son to go do this stuff, to accomplish for us against His will. That also would be uh, wrong thinking. But notice how God is described. The reason Christ came, the reason Christ accomplished our salvation is precisely because the Father, because God is rich in mercy, And has loved us with a great love even when we didn't have a beach house. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's a picture of the great love and mercy that God has for us. And in verse 7, there's this uh, picture of immeasurable riches um, uh, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. <clears throat> the reason God accomplished your salvation is because he wanted to. He set his affections on you before the foundation of the world, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit worked together to figure out a plan so to speak, to put it into sort of human language. Here's how we're going to accomplish and apply this salvation. God is a loving and kind and merciful, gracious uh, God who has poured out his love on us by redeeming us, by saving us from our sin, by uniting us to Christ. There is, of course... The, the, the danger, if you will, of running around telling everyone that Christ has died for them. Don't suggest to, when you're evangelizing, when you're seeking to win the lost, don't suggest to people that Jesus wanted to do this, but the Father didn't. And, and Jesus wanted to accomplish your salvation, but the Father didn't. Or the, Jesus didn't really want to do this, and the Father made him. That they were somehow at odds with each other. The reality is, this is a picture of the Father, the Son, and eventually the Spirit, all at work, doing the same thing for the same reason, to accomplish the same purpose. This love didn't start with the birth of Jesus. 
the love of God for you didn't begin when Jesus died on the cross. Right? Jesus did the things precisely because God already loved you. That's the picture. Because of this great love and mercy that God has had, verses 4 and 5, for us from before the foundation of the world. Why does God save us? Why? Because He's rich in mercy and abounding in love. Notice, though, verses 4 and 5. Notice, notice your beach house. Right? You never know how many friends you have until you rent a cottage at the beach. Well, what's your cottage in verses 4 and 5? What's the thing about you that would make God come and put his arm around you and go, Hey, remember how we were buddies? You've got this thing I just, I, I really want to benefit from. There's nothing. You have, you have sin. You have guilt. You have shame. We have absolutely nothing to offer. That's the, the first reason, the first why God accomplished this, uh, this work for us is because of who He is. And it looks in eternity past being rich in mercy and great love uh, toward us. But there's a, a second reason for this salvation. If I were to ask you, what is the chief end of man? I hope that the majority of you could come back with man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is that not the aim of our salvation? Is that not why He saved us? So that we might in return glorify and delight in Him and rejoice in Him? That's Sort of the reason for, for our salvation. The second sort of why God accomplished this. Notice in verse 7. So that in the ages to come. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. You go to the Tower of London. You see the crown jewels. You go to the Smithsonian and you see all this amazing art. Um, you go to certain colleges and you get to see trophy cabinets. That's what we are. That's what verse 7 says that you and I are toward God, for God. We are, in essence, we're, we're art, we're trophies, we're pictures of His immeasurable riches. We are, we stand as, as, as artwork, as trophies, as jewels, as those things that say, look at His grace. Because you see, again, where's your cottage Right? We don't ever get to go, you know, Jesus did a lot for me. God's done a lot to accomplish my salvation. But I've done some things too. Like, let me show you my... Right? It's a picture that the gospel changes us. It's a picture that, 
this salvation that God has accomplished for us actually changes us. It makes us different. It makes a difference in our lives so that we become different kinds of people. We wrestle with sin. We hate sin. Things we didn't care about before we were converted. He's freed us from the penalty of sin. He is freeing us from the power of sin. And that loosens our lips to praise and honor and glorify Him. It loosens our hearts and minds to love and delight in Him. And in many ways, it stands as evidence of His rich mercy and great love. That we literally say to ourselves, I'm I'm, going to be in heaven? Or what we're more likely to say, you mean God can save that guy? Do you know what he was like? Do you know his path? That's evidence. That's testimony of God's grace. This salvation that God has accomplished for us is toward his glory and that we might enjoy and delight in him. I mean, we know plenty of people. Some of you perhaps in this room are sort of shocked and surprised that you aren't dead or in prison or whatever your story could be. You sort of look back on your life and think to yourself, God can give grace to someone like me. God can deliver someone like me. That's a trophy. That's a... A jewel. That's a, a testimony to His grace. That's a story that celebrates His grace. We see what God has done for us, why He's done it for us, and then third, how He has done it for us. Uh, how exactly has He accomplished this salvation? What exactly has He done to, to so that we might be made alive? How is it that we're made alive and raised and seated with Christ? Um, I want you to notice a couple of things. Uh, I say this often and I will say it as often as I need to. When you're reading the Bible and you're trying to figure out what on earth does such and such mean? What does this passage mean? One of the things you'll find is that if there are words, concepts, phrases that kind of show up a bunch, that probably matters, right? I would pay attention to start there. You can't read... Ephesians 2, without almost getting tired of saying the phrase in Christ, right? It makes it almost cumbersome to read as many times as you have to stop and say in Christ. And that's the, that's the concept. That's the phrase. That's what's going on in this passage. In verse 1, we're dead in our sin. In verse 5, we've been made alive together with Christ. Verse 6, and raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Three times in one verse. Verse 7, in Christ. uh, In Christ Jesus. Verse 10, in Christ Jesus. Do you see the, the connection that Paul wants us to make? That Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to see? That this... Salvation is accomplished only 
and entirely and exclusively, some of those mean the exact same thing, by Jesus. That it's, that it's all been done in, with, and by Christ. We are completely dependent on His obedience, His faithfulness, His willingness to subject Himself to the law that He wrote because we break it. And yet to go to the cross and pay the debt that our sin, that our rebellion deserves. Sin's power is, um, sin's penalty is paid by Christ. Sin's power is defeated by Christ. And he's accomplished this work of salvation for us. Well, how do we get it? How do we receive it? How do we grab onto it? Well, that's verses 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Grace is, I used to, when I've taught like a children's um, uh, communicants class, new members class, I always use this illustration. If you uh, disobey your parents, uh, you deserve a spanking. If they don't give you a spanking, that's mercy. If they take you out for ice cream, that's grace. It's receiving goodness and favor that we don't deserve. You don't have a cottage at the beach. And yet God says, I'm going to set my affections on you in Christ anyway. We're dead in sin. We're following the world, the flesh, and the devil. And God says, but I love you. Therefore, in Christ, I'm redeeming you. In other words, our salvation is rooted in the grace and mercy of God. It's apprehended. It's grabbed onto by our faith and trust in God. I mean, if we could earn it. Verse 9, where would God's glory be? If we could earn our salvation ourselves, where would His glory be? Where would that trophy room be? There wouldn't be one because all the people in it could say, but hold on, He only did a little bit. I did more. I did stuff too. In other words, our faith is in Christ and Him alone for our salvation. We trust in Him alone for our salvation. And by the way, this second membership vow that we're kind of unpacking this morning is, is printed in your bulletin. And I, I, for years, I think I had the wrong understanding. And, and look, I've asked these questions I don't know how many times, so much so that we sit in session meetings in multiple churches now, and I recite them without needing them. And people look at me like, how do you do this? Well, I've asked them bazillions of times in my life. Times in my life. But I think I misunderstood the word alone. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as, he is, as He's offered in the Gospel? I think for years, I thought as opposed to pantheism, Mormonism, 
Confucianism, right? Um, Islam. Like, I thought that alone meant Jesus, Christianity, as opposed to other world religions. I don't think that's what it means. You see, old people can learn new stuff. I think the alone doesn't point to other religions. It points to me. It points to my tendency to say, hold on, Jesus, that's great and all, but look what I, but I mean, I, but I try really hard. I wasn't as bad as, well, those people, you know, as my parents or my kids or my neighbors or my whatever. How often do we want to add something, something that claims we're looking for our cottage at the beach? We're constantly going, let me find this thing that makes me worth God's love. And what this passage says is, you don't got that. That doesn't exist. I mean, that's why we sing Amazing Grace and not Logical Conclusion, which, by the way, would be a really lame song, (laughs) wouldn't it? Our salvation is all of God's grace in Christ to us, rooted in his obedience in life, in death, and his resurrection in our place. May we, because of and by that salvation, grow in our love for glorifying and enjoying God through it. We ask in his name, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your uh, rich in mercyness, your richness in mercy, uh, the greatness of your love with which you loved us, even when we had no cottage at the beach. Father, would you, even by this salvation that is all of your grace, would you even use that as you are freeing us? having freed us from the penalty of sin, as you're freeing us from the power of sin, may it be that we stop looking for that cottage. May we so glorify and enjoy you that we delight in coming nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling, so that we truly might sing that your grace is amazing and not merely a logical conclusion. We ask all of this in Christ's name and for His sake and for His glory. Amen.